Welcome to the Potter's House Community Church's podcast. Join us weekly as we feature our Sunday sermons. The Potter's House Community Church exists to help people be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus Christ. We hope today's message encourages you as we dive into God's Word. So grab your favorite drink and let's listen to today's sermon. So show me your mysteries, my God. As Wayne said, last night we started a a conversation um, for this GROW conference on the mission of God. And as a short, quick summary of what happened last night, in case you weren't here, was we defined what the mission of God is, his mission. I started off by asking uh, a question about the different mission statements that different companies have because it kind of encapsulates what they're about. We talked about Nike's mission statement and Google's mission statement and how it informs everything they do. But God has a mission statement too. God's mission is to make himself known. We see that through creation. We saw it through redemption. We see it in the hope of of new creation. And today what I wanted to do is following that same theme from creation all the way to the end is I wanted to walk through the scriptures and lay out for you the story of God, his story, how it's informed us about who he is as well as who we are. What are some of your guys' favorite stories? You can be interactive here, it's totally fine. I'm not sure if you guys are used to that or not, but like what are some of your favorite stories? Uh, Esther. Esther, okay, a biblical story. I love the story of Esther. It's, it's exactly, it's a, it's a great story of how God had Esther set apart for just such a time as this, to be used mightily by God. And that story within the scriptures has several elements that we're used to in all stories. It has a beginning. It has something go wrong. It has a story of trying to fix that thing that went wrong. And then ultimately it has some sort of resolution. But it's not just Esther. What other stories, what other stories do you guys like? Are you afraid to say like Twilight or something? What? What? <laughs> what Disney princesses? Daniel, another great story of, of God calling Daniel and using Daniel in exile to be used for God. What about in the world around us? What about just like literature and movies? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. I, I'm going to get to that in just a second, okay? <laughs> so we're, we're mind melding right now, but... But we're going to leave that one aside. One more. One more story. Star Wars. Again, a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it has, has all the elements of every good story. It has the way it starts, the way it was, the status quo, the beginning. It has some sort of inciting incident that either sets somebody off on a grand adventure, either propels somebody into the abyss and trying to figure out their life, but something happens. Some sort of conflict arises. Sometimes it's man versus man. Sometimes it's man versus nature. Sometimes it's man versus God even. But these stories have something that incites a change. And then some sort of rising action as the story progresses towards trying to figure out what to do based on that inciting incident. And then it has a climax. This climax is typically an, it it can be an all is lost kind of moment where it kind of reaches the crucible. And then we have resolution. 
So story that builds, climax, resolution. Speaking of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> where does Lord of the Rings begin? It begins in the Shire. In this small but beautiful, this idyllic and fruitful land filled with these short little people with big feet, hobbits. But then there's some sort of inciting incident, right? Something happens. Enter the ring. This ring that Bilbo Baggins had found and he's left it behind and Frodo comes upon it. And this ring would allow Sauron to fully unleash his evil rule, risking even the Shire. This ring's about to change things. It certainly changes the trajectory of Frodo's life, but it also has implications, broadly speaking, throughout the whole land that Tolkien created. So then Frodo and Samwise are propelled onto this mission. Sent by Gandalf to leave the Shire, something hobbits don't do. We don't leave the Shire. But Frodo and Sam are called to leave before Sauron could find them. The rising action... Well, we learn that the ring can only be destroyed at Mount Doom, right? We see the loss of Gandalf. We see the dissolution of the fellowship of the ring. That's the first book, the kind of conclusion of that. The second, we see orc armies. We see Gollum and the spider. And, and all of this is happening throughout this trilogy. And, and towards the end, we get to this climax. And I know I'm fast forwarding. There's just a lot there. If you want to figure out what's in Lord of the Rings, read Lord of the Rings. But we finally get to this climax. Frodo has that all is lost moment, that climax moment where he's finally there. He can destroy the ring, but what happens? All of a sudden, he's wondering, do I keep the ring? I want the ring. You kind of see shades of Gollum coming through in Frodo himself. Frodo, who's been this long-suffering, faithful, steadfast character throughout all of the Lord of the Rings is now having this moment of what do I do? This inner struggle. Of course, we know that ultimately the ring is destroyed and all is well. And sorry if that's a spoiler. It's been around for a while. You should have already read it. <laughs> but the resolution to the story, at least part of the resolution, is that Frodo and Mary and Poppin and these hobbits, they go back to the Shire. And yes, it was, it was ransacked. Yes, this beautiful, idyllic, fruitful community had been broken down, but Frodo and his hobbit friends return and they rebuild the Shire. There's resolution. Be it the Lord of the Rings, Daniel, Esther, Star Wars, any other great story, they are compelling in part because they reflect this pattern of what a story is. And this story is modeled, I dare say, I'm, I'm making a contention here, I'm making an argument, it's modeled actually, perhaps unconsciously, off of the story of God, the way that God set up his story. And that's what I want us to look at today, is the story of God. And, and my contention is that we're gonna see elements that we see in all great literature, all great, all great stories, whether it be on film, in book, or on stage. We're going to see these elements. And what I want to do towards the end of our conversation this morning anyways, is take that story and try to apply it to how we view the world, how we view ourselves, 
and hopefully establish us well for what our second part today will be in terms of the implications for us as a church to live out the mission of God, which is to make himself known, but also to live in the story of God. Are we following? That's, where, that's, that's the plan for today. I hope you guys can stick around after lunch. What is for lunch, by the way, Wayne? You never said. Pizza. Pizza. So you're going to want to stick around for lunch and then stick around after lunch to, to hear the conclusion of our GROW conference. But let's begin where all great stories begin, at the beginning. Creation. A small but beautiful, idyllic and fruitful land. Yes, that could describe the Shire, but it also describes our beginning. It describes the beginning in Genesis. For we know in Genesis 1, and this is a little bit of a recap from some of you guys were here last night. In the beginning, God created out of nothing. And he said and he pronounced over all the different aspects of creation that it was good. In verse 26 and 27, he creates man. He says, let us in our image, after our likeness, create man and have dominion. As Ken had alluded to when he came up this morning and shared what God's been teaching him, allow us to have, to be co-regents over this world. But we learn that this good creation was a land of beauty and of plenty. A land, what's more, where God walked intimately with humanity. He walked with us. He knew us. We knew him. This is our shire. This is our beautiful, idyllic land. A place where we were purposed, not just to have dominion and to rule, but to do it in light of how God has made us, which is to walk with him and to be with him in his likeness, to be his image bearers in the world. But like all great stories, an inciting incident happened. And the thing is, it didn't take very long to get there. Genesis 3 hits us square in the face. In verses 1 through 7, which we'll read, because this is the inciting incident. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened was that God created this beautiful place and he put man in there. He created Adam and he created Eve. We got this account from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, he also tells us that we have these trees, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And he says, as long as you are here walking with me, you have access to everything in this land. You can eat freely of the tree of life and everything else that's here. But the one thing, the one thing you cannot take part in is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here they have this beautiful shire to live and to walk intimately with God. But the inciting incident is this serpent. And we know that this serpent is, is the evil one. It's Satan. It's the, it's the one that's compelling us and driving us away from God. He's, he begins to ask the question of Eve. Well, what did God really say? And he begins to plant seeds of doubt in our minds and in Eve's mind. Well, did he really say this? How did he say it? I don't think that's exactly what he means. And he began to cause doubt. And so then, then Adam and Eve willingly decided to go against what God had commanded and called them towards. And they decided that they were no longer happy just being God's creation, just being God's image bearers. They wanted to be, what does the Bible say? Like God. They wanted to make themselves God themselves. They wanted to be God unto themselves. They wanted to decide what was right and wrong. And so we are told that here in this moment, creation falls. But how does what happened with Adam and Eve so many years ago impact us? Well, we too fall prey to the same lies, to the same inner desires. We want to be God unto ourselves. We want to decide what is right and what is wrong. We want to be the final arbiter, not only of moral convictions, but our desires of what we want to pursue, where we want to go. We want it to be up to us. I struggle with it. I know you guys struggle with it. And the consequences, we are told, is that sin, which is just our deciding to do our own thing instead of doing God's thing, enters the world and the world is broken. That shire is no longer what the shire was supposed to be. And all of a sudden we are told that, that man goes against God and man goes against creation and man goes against one another. And this inciting incident changes everything. I don't think this is a very hard thing to see in our world. I don't think you even have to be a Christian to, to recognize that there's something not right, that there's something broken. We experience suffering. We experience pandemics. We experience weather disasters. And, and, and we know that there is sin against one another. We have internal strife and conflict with one another, with our family members, with our friends. We see it in the world, and if we're being self-aware, and if we're being honest, we see it in ourselves. This inciting incident changes the trajectory. We're only three chapters in, guys. And everything's already changed. But I love what the Jesus storybook tells us. The Jesus storybook is a, is a great little early child kind of Bible that kind of gives the big picture of what's happening in the scriptures. And we read it to our kids when they were little. But the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible says that God embarks on this great rescue plan. And that's kind of what happens because once this enters here, once sin enters, 
God begins to work about towards redeeming his people. So now we're kind of getting into that, into that rising action. The story begins to build and it builds and it builds. And maybe, you, maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're new to the church. Maybe this is your first time here. I don't know. But you look at the Bible and you go, it's like it's a bunch of different books all put together. You have stories of history. You have poetry. You have the gospels. You have some like prophecy. You have all these different types of things going on in the Bible, right? But there's a thread that connects all of this, which I contend is this story of God, of this great rescue plan, of God working through creation to bring about redemption and resolution. But we're not quite to the climax yet. We're only three chapters in. But we see that God has, has instigated his mission which is to make himself known, which we covered last night, and thus walk intimately with us. By Genesis 12, we've already had Noah. We've had the Tower of Babel. We've had Cain and Abel. We've had the, the consequences of sin being made manifest in the world. And in Genesis 12, what happens? We'll, we'll enter Abraham. Verses one to three read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, of course that was his name before it became Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Here we have another story of someone embarking on a journey. Verse two, and I will make you what? A great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What do we know about Abram? How old is he? Do you guys know? We're told that he's 99 years old. His wife Sarah is 90, give or take. They've never been able to have children. He has no one to pass on his lineage. When everything was built upon a patriarchy of sorts of being passed on through the lineage. Abram and Sarah have nothing. In fact, they probably are nothing. They're wandering old people that don't have a, have a family. And it is through this person, through this couple that God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Can't be a great nation if you don't have any kids can't build a family unless you have children, can't be a people when it's just the two of you. But God makes this promise and thus begins this great rescue plan. He says to Abraham, I will make you a people. And it's through Abraham and then his, his children. And man, there's so many good stories here, guys. I can't get to them all. But Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and then this people of, of, the, of God's people called the Israelites. And it's the Israelites that God gives us Moses and the original rescue, the original rescue plan, which was the Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, which is God freeing his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It's what the Jews still celebrate today as the great redemption of God, of him freeing his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. 
And as they escape, and yes, they cross the Red Sea because God made it dry, and, and they're there, they're, they're outside of Egypt, they're on their own now, and God calls Moses up onto the mountain. It's there that Moses hears from God, and he sees God, and sees the whole Shekinah glory, and it's here in the midst of these people, wandering in the Sinai desert, that God makes a promise to Moses that I will make you a nation. I will institute what it means for you to be this nation that I promised to your forefathers. So God's promised a people, he's promised a nation, all as a part of his rescue plan. But this people, this nation, well called to be a blessing, as it said to Abraham, I'll bless you so that you can be a blessing. In order to make God known, they eventually kind of fall short and kind of keep on kicking the can and stumbling over themselves. Even right there with Moses. Moses comes down and what happens? They're already worshiping something else. They're worshiping a golden calf. But so the story of the Israelites go, the ups and downs, the calling back to the Lord, returning to the Lord, then falling away from the Lord. A story that many a pastor have said for many a generations is a great model of probably our own lives as we try to walk with God. Throughout the travails of the Israelites, God would allude to a future answer to this constant up and down. He would give them judges to rule over them. At the end of judges, we know that the Israelites are like, we want a king. All the other cool kids, they have kings. We want king. We want to be like them. God says, I thought I was your king. I wanted to be that, but I'll give this to you. So he gives them King Saul. And in Saul, he, he fits the part, right? He's tall, he's broad-shouldered, he's, he's strong, he can lead an army. This is, this is who a king should be. But we know that he ultimately falls short, pursues his own end, and, and God is already bringing up this young shepherd boy who be King David. Yes, a man who is flawed. We know of his flaws. They are clear to us. But also we are told that he is one who seeks after God's own heart. And it's to David in 2 Samuel that we learn that God promises David that I declared to you that the Lord will make you a house, that I will set up your line, your kingdom to last forever, that there will be someone on the throne and that this someone will persist and he will make things right. So God's promise to Abraham at this point that I will make you a people. He promises to Moses and this people called the Jews that I will make you a nation. He promises to David, the second of the United Kings, that I will make you a house and a kingdom that will persist But guys, even after all these promises, the, the Israelites keep on struggling. They can't get their act together. They've seen God work in amazing ways. There are seasons when good kings come, but many more seasons when bad kings come. Bad kings to rule this people. Remember, they wanted a king. So there are seasons when God leads his people away from Jerusalem into exile as a means to trying to draw them back to himself to realize they need to rely on him and not themselves. 
And it's in times of exile that God brings prophets and these prophets begin to point towards a future hope. The story is building. Isaiah says in, in chapter 53 in this great picture of the suffering servant, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And Isaiah begins to, to lay out a vision, a prophecy of someone who will come to take their suffering away by taking the suffering on himself. In Jeremiah chapter 31, I think we have it on our screen, 31 to 34, which I do want to read for us. God, once again to his people, makes a promise. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new promise with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's Moses, the Mosaic covenant, right? My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, though I walked with them, though I was with them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give their iniquity, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God says, no longer will it be me just shouting into the wind to know me. I will find a way. I will make a new covenant. I will imprint on their hearts, internally, from the inside out, a way for them to know me. And it will be a new covenant that I make with my people. And so you have a people that have these promises, that are clinging to these promises, and they're waiting for God to act. In the beginning of the Gospels, we get how God is about to do it. For he knew the only way was to send himself, for him to come and dwell among us. In a similar fashion to the way that he dwelt among us intimately and in flesh and in reality in the garden, so God sends Jesus to walk with us, to bear the burden of being human while at the same time also fully being God. This Jesus, this son of God dwells among us and walks with us. He's one with the Father, we are told, he is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, we are told. For his followers, he was the answer. They were looking back at some of these prophecies going like, this is the guy. Now there are plenty going like, this isn't the guy. Like this guy's crazy, this guy's off his, off his rockers. But for his followers who knew, this was the answer. And Jesus lives his life. He, he has these miracles. He does all these teachings, all kind of pointing towards who he is and what he's about. And then we get towards the end and we see this triumphal entry. I mean, we just celebrated the Easter season. We just celebrated Palm Sunday a couple weeks ago. This triumphal entry where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, 
Sure, not on a big steed, but on a donkey. But what are the people singing? What are they shouting? Hosanna, Hosanna. He's finally here. The answer, the answer to our oppression under the Romans, our answer to the oppression of ourselves over ourselves, our answer is finally here. What happens? A few days later, Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is humiliated. Jesus is put on trial. Jesus has walked a walk of shame up the Mount of Calvary and hung on a cross with titles above him that are quite apropos but were meant to be mocking the king of the Jews. And it's here that Jesus suffers humiliation and an agonizing death on the cross. We've come to our climax. Christ on a cross, dead. It's that all are lost, all is lost moment. The disciples walk away confused. Peter doesn't know what to do. The same Peter who confessed him as the Christ, as the son of the living God, turns his back and walks away from Jesus, denying him three times. I can't imagine the despair they would have felt. Praise God, three days later. Luke 24, verses five to seven. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, the man said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified on the third day rise? All was not lost. Jesus had conquered even death. Jesus has rose. And finally through Jesus, a path truly emerges for us to fully know God. Taking on our sin and our brokenness, he became a sin offering for us. Recreating a path for us to know God, a bridge to understand him and to see him in the way that he was intended to be seen, but also conquering death, the punishment for our sin. Remember in the garden, we no longer could eat from that tree of life when God expelled us from the garden because of our sin. But through Jesus, through this better Adam, we are told that we now have life and life everlasting. But no good stories done just at the climax. There's resolution. We see through the New Testament, there's this church and the church is born in Acts as the Spirit descends and comes upon the people and empowers them to do great and marvelous things to point people towards knowing God. Yes, the church, like the Israelites, has its issues. And so we find ourselves in what we call this already but not yet kingdom, but we know that one day God will make all things new. The Shire is being rebuilt 
and God will make it new once again. Revelations 21, 1 to 4 tells us this. This is God, this is John's revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. This is God's promise. I don't know if you noticed, but throughout all of these promises that God's made... From Abraham all the way to this promise in Revelation 21, the promise is that he is going to dwell with us. That we'll be his people and he'll be our God. But what's more is all that is broken will finally be restored. Will finally be made new. And so we have creation We have fall, we have the story of redemption which spans the bulk of our scriptures and then we have the resolution, this restoration that God promises. This is the story on which all other stories are built. The creation being the garden, things as they were intended. The fall, something that has upset the balance. Redemption, some story, some path, some way to make things right. And restoration, a promise of return. So when I say that every story is built upon this, what I mean is not just literature and cinema and stage, but what I mean is every human story is built upon this. We all have a story that we're living out. We all have a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We just may not know it. Jeff Vanderstelt, who's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, tells us there's questions that we can ask to help illuminate ourselves to our story and the story of others related to creation, fall, redemption, and restoration in our lives. He says, our stories will model this. For in creation we ask, who or what do you credit for who you are? What is is the foundation of your story? And in the fall we ask, why are things or people not the way that they're supposed to be? And who's to blame for it? In redemption we ask, who or what will rescue me and redeem me from what is broken? And finally, in restoration, what will the world or what will your world look like when all is as it should be? Or who or what will be the focus of the world is another way of looking at that. But we all live out this story. We all have a myth that we've created. We all have a story that we're living out where we have this idea of who or what I am. A story of the way that it should be. 
And we all have a story of why it's not the way that it should be. We all have a story of how we are trying to live out fixing why it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And we all have a hope, perhaps distant, but a hope of what it could be again. I live this out. I try to live it out in light of the gospel of who God's made me to be in light of his creation, in light of what the fall is really about, about what redemption really looks like through Jesus and what he promises, but I still struggle with myself. I still have this myth, I still have this story in my life where I am living out an identity of trying to be a church planner. And the fall for me, the inciting incident, is that I failed at it. 22 years old, me and my wife, we came back to Canada. I'm from Cochrane originally, but I went down and we went to school at Union where Wayne and Brittany also went to school. But I came back to plant a church. It didn't go very well. I mean, ultimately there's no church from those six or seven years. Something wasn't right. I'm not able to live out this true identity. And so I began to try to figure out how it is that I'm supposed to fix this. How it is that I'm supposed to make it right. And I began to try to live out my story of redemption. Sometimes by blaming others. Oh, it wasn't my fault. It was the organization's fault. It wasn't my fault It was bad timing. And still to this day, I'll be honest, I think I still struggle with this because God has shown our church some favor over the last five or six years. I've been pastoring now at Tapestry for 10 years. And over the last six or seven years, we as a church have been able to equip, to train, and to send out five different church plants in our area that are all still going and thriving at this point. You know, as they say, if you can't do, you teach, right? And so that's maybe what I did. But, but I still struggle with that original identity, that me trying to fix it by helping others plant. The thing is, it's about me and me fixing me and me doing my thing. And, and that's just my story. I don't know what your guys' story is. I don't know what story that you are currently living in we can look at other more abstract, general things. Perhaps we live in a world right now where admittedly we have some issues with how we treat the environment. But we also have a world and perhaps I would dare say even a religion that's proposing that that this climate change and environmentalism taken to the extreme is actually based on a different story than God's. It's based on a story that that Mother Earth was created in such a way that it would be sustaining and effective and idyllic all on its own, that the sin that we've done is that we are the absolute problem, and the story of redemption is that we have to fix it. It's up to us to save the world. And the restoration is that one day it will all be made back the way it was supposed to be. Now, there's elements in that that are true. 
yes, we haven't treated the world the way that we should be. But when we live out this identity, when we live out this narrative, all of a sudden it's no longer God's story that's at work, that it's actually sin that's broken, and it's actually God's creation, and that we are called to be stewards of God's creation, and it becomes about us accomplishing it on our own. And even other religions, they have stories. Stories of creation and how creation came to be. They have a story of what's broken. In Buddhism, the fall, the brokenness is our desire. If we could just find a way to, to, to stop desiring things, stop desire in general, then we'll finally be free from sinsama, this cycle that we continually find ourselves in, and we'll finally be able to break free. For the Muslims, the fall in the Quran is that we have lost sight of Allah. We have lost sight of who he is and we no longer remember who he is. And the way that we fix that, guys, well, we do the five pillars. We do the rules. We follow the law. And if we do that well enough, then in the end, we will eventually be with God in paradise. But again, who's it about? It's about us doing it, us accomplishing it. The thing that Jesus offers, that God offers in his story, in the story of God, is it's the only one. Whether our story is about attaining the level of, of socioeconomic level of our parents, being able to have a house and two cars and a dog and a cat and three kids and being able to live as a middle-income person without having too much stress because this is the picture that we were told, but the fall is that we live in a world of interest rates and pandemics and we live in a world where it's not fair and I can't get the right job at the right time because I don't know the right person and if I just work a little bit harder, then maybe I can get there and then eventually I can have this, this beautiful, idyllic picture of what life should look like. Again, being about us, the story of God tells us it's not about us. The story of God tells us that no matter how hard we try to fix ourselves, to fix others, to fix the world, we will fall short. But the story of God doesn't leave us hopeless for it tells us in Jeremiah 31 and through the Gospels and throughout the New Testament that Jesus is the only one that says that I have come to fully fix what was broken. But it goes against our default, our desire to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, for ourselves to figure it out, for ourselves to be the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus is the only one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, because it is only through him that he says, I will take on all that is broken. We are right to look at the world and go, man, something's not quite right. We are wrong when we say that we can find a solution to fix it. So what does all this have to do with where we find ourselves? What does this have to do with mission? The mission of God and the mission of the church? I think there's a couple things before I close. They both relate to how we view our own stories and how we help others interpret their stories. By knowing God's story, by knowing why 
God created, why he made us, the purpose that he's given us, which is to know him and to be free in him and to serve him and to worship him, for us to know why things are actually broken. Because we desire to make ourselves God. We desire to make it about us. And if we truly know what redemption looks like, that it's not picking ourselves up by the bootstraps, but rather it's surrendering ourselves to Christ who has accomplished it. And if we know that he will take our current state, which is, yes, still marred by brokenness, but one day will be made new and have hope in what God will do, then it allows us to assess our own lives in light of what God's doing and to help others as they struggle in their lives. A couple of years ago, a good friend of mine didn't know Jesus. I've been hanging out with him for like, I've known him since I was a kid, um, but didn't know Jesus. Shared the gospel with him probably a hundred times. Like it was, a, it was a good number of times. Ended up getting into a little bit of relational challenges and ended up having a kid with a girl that they were kind of off and on again. And his life just got really unbalanced really quickly. He was mostly put together in his life. He was fairly successful in business, fairly successful in the public sphere, but interpersonally still had some issues. But his life got turned flipped up right side down. And it wasn't too long after that that Pat would eventually give his life to Christ. And I remember driving with him one day and I said, man, I need to apologize to you. He goes, why, why do you need to apologize to me? I said, for a long time I prayed, and I was always open with him, that, that you would become a Christian, but I prayed that God would rock your world in such a way to where your story, the story that you were trying to live out, would show the cracks, would break down so that you could actually see why it is that you know God, why it is that you should know God. And so to some degree, I feel like I prayed this relational mess to come upon you. Like, I didn't pray for this relational mess, but like, I prayed that God would rock your world so that you would know that you need him. And it was through that that I was able to minister specifically based on the story of God, based on the gospel message that we have through this story into conflict in his life because his story was breaking down. So we have an opportunity by knowing God's story to confront and to correct inconsistencies or brokenness in the lives of ourselves and of others. And we also have an opportunity to complete their story with God's story. There is hope in knowing when you finally come to your end that no matter what you do, you can't fix yourself and knowing that God's offered a way to fix you, to heal you, to redeem you, to give you a new heart, a new life. The challenging part for us is that we have to come to the end of ourselves to get there. And our instinct is to hang on tight. Our instinct is to burrow down, to clench up, 
to hold on to everything that we can. And the paradox is that through God's story, he's telling us to let it go, to surrender ourselves. Again, I don't know where your story is this morning. I don't know if you've come to the point where you said, hey, I, I believe in what it is that you're saying. I believe in this gospel. I believe in Jesus. Maybe you're, you're still questioning this this morning. But I wonder if you were to look through your life and go, how have I been trying to fix it and how is it honestly going? You might get to the point where, hey, maybe I just need to ask Jesus how it is that he might do it. And here's another thing I believe. I believe that if you're here this morning, believer or not, you're here on purpose, not here by accident. I believe God is wanting to tell each and every one of us something about who he is, about what he's done, but also about who we are and what story we can live in our lives. I covered last night that God's mission is to make himself known. He wants you to know him, to walk with him, to dwell with him, to understand what it means for him to be your God and for you to be his And in this story, we see the lengths to which God goes to just that end. So that we can know him and walk with him. The question is, what story are you living? Are you still living your story? Are you finally at a point to say, hey, I haven't done a good job with this story yet. Maybe I'm going to try his. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as men and women who have a tendency to try to make it about us. Who want it to be about us. Lord, your call, your invitation is for us to realize that it's all about you about knowing you, and only in knowing you can we understand what it means to be free, to experience peace, and experience what it means to be truly human in the way that you intended from the very beginning, Lord. Lord, compel us each and every day with your story, the story of your covenant, the story of your peace, so that we may know you and walk with you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and share with others. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at www.potterschurch.ca or you can connect with us also on social media. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of our weekly sermon series. We hope that you have such an amazing rest of your day. Don't you feel yourself?